Open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I believe it's page 1191 if you're using the Pew Bible. God can't do that. That's our sermon series this summer. It's a look at God's attributes from the negative perspective. But these are good negatives. We remind ourselves that like a a, a test for a disease, some negatives are really a good thing. We're considering the things God can't do. In our first week, we saw that God's limitations do not preclude his infinitude. God is infinite even if he is bounded. And he must still be regarded as the Almighty because his limitations are purely a matter of his own constitution. There is nothing and no one outside himself who can prevent him from doing anything. Last week, we saw that God cannot change. <clears throat> Excuse me. He is immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And related to that, we considered God's impassibility. Impassibility. He is not emotionally affected the way we are. And we saw that as a result of that, that we are secure in him, that we cannot anger him to the point where he would ever cut us free. This week is closely related to the idea of God's immutability. That's easy for me to say. God's immutability. The title of this week's sermon is God Can't Lie. So let's take a look at Hebrews 6. I know the bulletin says we're going to look at verse 18, but after the bulletin was printed, and as I did more sermon prep, I decided we needed a little more context. So we're going to back up to verse 13, and we're going to read all the way through verse 20. Hebrews 6, uh, 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 13 through 20. And I will remind you, as I often do, that here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. In other words, to truly know God, including all the things he can't do, you must know his word. So give both ear and heart to God's word from Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you, multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The the, the grass withers and the flower fades, But the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, show us yourself today. Reveal to us the the certainty that we can have, that you never change, you never lie, you never change your mind, you never deceive, and you are never surprised by anything. 
and knowing that you are fully trustworthy. Help us to trust in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I swear. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I pinky swear. It's amazing how many different ways we have to confirm that what we're saying is true. From the informal, if I'm lying, I'm dying, to the very formal, I do solemnly swear. We have a lot of ways, myriad ways, to try to convince other people that what we're saying is true. And that's not really a good thing. We have all of those ways, all of those affirmations and vows and oaths we take because the reality is that our simple yes doesn't mean yes and our simple no does not mean no. Our default assumption is that we will not be believed and that we have to convince our listener that we are, in fact, trustworthy. You see, we know that we're going to be taken at a minimum as unreliable and perhaps even downright dishonest. Why? Because as a a race, as a people, as a collective group, we play fast and loose with the truth. We do so in the conduct of our business. How many commercials have I seen that promise that this paint will cover in one coat? Never happens. We are less than forthright in our personal lives. I'm fine almost never means I'm fine. Some of our dishonesties are little white lies. No, you don't look fat in that outfit. But some of our dishonesties are egregious. I swear, honey, there's nothing going on between me and her. Such pervasive dishonesty causes us to doubt every interpersonal relationship. And God is a person. He is the person. He is so much person that he expresses himself in three persons. And so we take our expectations of interpersonal relationship and we cast them upon God. We act toward him as we expect to have to act toward one another. Look back at verse 13. It's actually an astounding thing that's said there. Let it sink in for a moment. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. You see, the whole point here is that God wanted to convince Abraham that he was telling the truth. How bizarre is that? That God would have to convince Abraham that he was telling the truth. But as we begin to unravel this passage, what we're going to see is that the message of the passage is that God is radically different. He is utterly trustworthy. He is absolutely reliable. God can't lie. We're going to unpack that looking at three things. We're going to look first at God's nature, then we're going to look at our need, and finally we're going to come back around and look at God's accommodation. God's nature, our need, and God's accommodation. So first, God's nature. 
It's right there in the middle, verse 18, uh, the, the verse that's noted in the bulletin. The nature of God is said right there in verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. You know, it struck some of us a couple of weeks ago when we kicked off a sermon series entitled, God Can't Do That. But here it is in the Bible. Very plain. Something God cannot do. And what did we see in our, New Te- our Old and New Testament readings? All four of the passages affirm the same thing. Our opening psalm affirmed the same thing. God is absolutely trustworthy by the very nature of his constitution, who he is in his divine personhood. God can't lie. Now, God's credibility, his reliability, is a three-pronged thing. First, there is the usual sense that we mean by the word lie. And that's really what Hebrews 6.18 is getting after. In other words, God will not deceive, trick, mislead. He will not point one way and then go another way. God does not fake, feign, or fib. He fully expresses his intent. If God says A, he means A and only But God's utter reliability extends beyond mere intent. See, it's not just the case that when God said A, he truly meant A, but then later something came up and he decided to change his mind. That's not how God works. Jesus' own brother described God in this way in James 1.17. God is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. If God were to say the Orioles will win the World Series this year, he would not then, three weeks later, decide and change his mind and say, well, Mary, Mary, Mary Landers, I've kind of looked at you guys, and I, no, I'm not going to let the Orioles win it. I'm going to have the hated Yankees win instead. That's not how God operates. That's not how he does. Nothing can change his mind later on. God doesn't say, well, yeah, I intended for the Orioles to win, but, but I've changed my mind. God does not do that. Now, we change our mind, not because we're necessarily dishonest. For example, if we're headed out to dinner, on the way there, I might be saying to Becky, I'm having the steak. And then I get there, and they have this wonderful seafood special I didn't know about. I didn't lie to Becky. I didn't deceive her. I didn't mislead her. New information came my way, and I changed my mind and decided to have the seafood special. But not even that happens with God. For there is no new information with God. He was aware of the seafood special on the menu. Nothing will catch God unaware. So it's not just that God doesn't lie in the sense that he doesn't deceive intentionally. God doesn't accidentally lie. Because he will not change his mind. Because he will never be surprised. If God says steak, then it will be steak. Now, by the way, a little aside here, you are welcome to change from steak to seafood if you're going out for dinner, not trying to tell you you can't do that. Changing our minds on things like that is perfectly fine. But in our call to be like God, we have to realize that there, are, there is certain new information which is not justification for changing our minds. In other words, just because you didn't technically lie when you gave your word, you may still be bound by that word. For example, you took a solemn vow on your wedding day, 
A newer, younger, more attractive person is not a reason to change your mind and have an affair. You signed a mortgage agreement. An economic downturn is not a reason to short sell your house. How did David say it in Psalm 15? God honors those who fear the Lord, who swear to his own hurt and do not change. Even changing your mind about the chicken or the fish at a wedding reception may hurt somebody else when they don't get what they wanted. So keep your word. Eat what you said you would eat. Let your yes be yes and your fish be fish. God is trustworthy because he never misleads, nor does he ever change his mind. But there is another sense in which God is reliable. Now, anytime you try to do an illustration about the nature of God, you're going to get in some trouble. Because there's nothing on this earth that truly correlates to the nature of God. But let me try nevertheless. So the, the whole debt debacle of a few weeks ago, notwithstanding, U.S. Treasury bonds are actually perfectly secure. They are 100% reliable. Why? Because they can just print the money to pay it off. $32 trillion in debt? Let there be $32 trillion, and there was $32 trillion. And the presses just ran for a little longer. That is sort of like the nature of God. You see, when we're dealing with God, his word is causative. His word is powerful. When God spoke into the nothingness of the universe and said, let there be, there was. God's word establishes things. The old King James Bible says it beautifully in Romans 4.17. God quickens the dead and calls those things which are not as though they were. God said, let there be light. And there was light. Jesus spoke to the storm and said, peace, be still. And there was peace. And there was stillness. God cannot lie in part because the very act of his speaking things makes them reality. Now, this last sense of God's character may sound a little esoteric. It may sound a little philosophical. But it actually has more uh, uh, import than we may realize. Let me try to explain. When I was young, when I was a child, in matters that I remember, those things that struck me, I recall my father being generally very reliable. As a rule, if dad said, I'm going to be at your game, at your concert, or whatever the event, he was there. To the point that I can remember him uh, uh, being the umpire, putting on the pad, putting on the mask, with a suit and tie, I guess he took the suit coat off, but he had the tie, the dress shirt, everything else, because his plane landed late in O'Hare, he jumped in the rental car, he drove straight to my game so he could make because he said he was going to be there, and he was there. My dad did everything within his power to keep his word. But that's the point. Dad did everything in his power. But my father lacked the power to make planes land on time. He lacked the power to make Chicago traffic just poof, disappear. So there were times, through no fault of his own, through no flaw in his character, there were times my father was not there when he said he would be. 
You see, that's why it's important we understand the nature of God's word. That will never happen to God. If God says it, it will be so. His word is causative. His word brings things about. If God says the Orioles are going to win the World Series, that will bring about their victory in the October Classic. You see, God is not merely striving. He's not doing his best to save those who believe in Jesus. God said in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God's saying it makes it so. When we say God can't lie, we mean that God will not say A when he intends B. We also mean that he will not change his mind based on new information. But we also mean that by the word of his power, what he says will come to be. He is utterly, absolutely, 100% trustworthy, reliable, honest. And in that way, God is utterly unlike us. Which brings us to point number two, our need. Stop and consider how often we demand assurances of trustworthiness. We have to put down collateral for a loan. We have to swear an oath in court. In a business transaction, we want to guarantee that it'll be like this or we'll get our money back. And think about how important credit scores are as a track record of past reliability. Banks, check your credit scores. Employers, check your credit scores. Landlords, check your credit scores. I've even heard of one occasion where a young woman tried to find out the credit score of a would-be suitor just to know if he was a reliable young man. Why? Because we're not God. We are not inherently reliable. And therefore, as we interact with one another, we want some measure of assurance. You see, because with human beings, I will repay is not the guarantee it ought to be. And thus we look for those oaths, those vows, those other things. Sadly, our interpersonal relationships play out similarly. Stop and think about how often we say this kind of stuff in our everyday lives. We'll ask the innocent question, honey, does this outfit make me look fat? But then we push it. Really? Are you sure? Why do we have to follow up? Why do we think the first answer won't be an honest answer? At the family get-together, anybody care if I take the last dumpling? You sure? You're all okay with it? We have to always push it. And again, it's in this incessant need for added confirmation does really reveal who we are as people. And it brings us back to where we started all of this. Do you pinky swear? All these added affirmations and confirmations arise out of, our, uh, out of the dishonesty that taints all of our interactions with other human beings, whether in business or interpersonal relationships. You see, when we tell someone they look good, we don't always mean it. We just don't want to deal with the fallout of telling them the truth in that moment. But then later they see themselves in the mirror and they go, this outfit didn't look good. And the confidence in that 
that trust, that relationship is undermined in a small way. When we say, sure, we sometimes mean, I'd rather you didn't. And we almost never mean I'm fine when we say I'm fine. We should not approach God on these terms. His saying something should be affirmation enough. You know, the Westminster Standards, we've been working our way through the Catechism this past year, are the Westminster Standards, the Catechisms, and the Confession of Faith. These are amazing documents, and we're blessed to have them as part of our church's constitution. They have, however, a glaring omission. It is, in some ways, an egregious omission. The Westminster Standards never claim the inerrancy of Scripture. Think about that. Nowhere do these documents state that the Bible is without error. And that has caused some problems in Presbyterian history. Now, if you read all of the other writings of those who wrote the Confession, and if you looked at their sermons and you examined their way of life, there is no doubt that to a man, they believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. So why didn't they say so? Well, in their minds, they did. The very first paragraph, the Confession of Faith, states that the Bible is the Word of God. That's it. That's their statement of inerrancy. The Bible is the Word of God, and they understood the nature of God. So in their minds, by saying it was the Word of God, they were saying it was without error. They didn't have to comment about what science may someday uncover, or what archaeology may not uncover. For they were not worried about the truthfulness, the accuracy of the Bible. It was rooted in the nature of God. They did not, however, do the uh, the best possible job of accommodating human weakness. Notice how God does. How God excels even over the wonderful document of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Here we have... In this passage, God accommodating our need. That brings us to our third point, our final point this morning. God's accommodations of our need. God accommodates our doubts, acquiesces to our needs, condescends to our demands. God can't lie, cannot tell a falsehood. And yet, what did God do with Abraham? He swore an oath. Verse 13, again, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Now, it's interesting. There's actually research out there. Certain uh, businesses will require their executives when they hire in to sign an oath of honesty. They're hiring in voluntarily, taking the job with the company, and they have to sign this oath of honesty. And research shows that such businesses actually have a lower rate of fraud. Executives who sign that oath of honesty actually tend to be more honest. Do we imagine that that was what was going on with God? Do we imagine for even one moment that God was more honest with Abraham because he swore an oath to Abraham? So why did he do it? What's going on there? Well, we're told there in verse 17. Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, 
He guaranteed it with an oath. God swore out an oath to help Abraham believe. To show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose. Abraham had a limited track record with this God. Not a lot of history with this God, so to speak. Abraham was accustomed, he'd grown up with gods who lied all the time. Gods who were even more fickle than most human beings. And the true God wanted to convince him. What an amazing accommodation. Did God owe that to Abraham? Was there any obligation on behalf of God? No, of course not. He's God. Remember that old bumper sticker? Back in the 70s, maybe the early 80s, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Just take out the middle sentence. God said it, that settles it. Regardless of whether or not Abraham believed it, it was so because God said it. And demanding more of God than just his word could actually be an insult to the character of God. And yet God condescends. He reaches down. He meets Abraham in the midst of his doubt. God's declarative word to Abraham contained no falsehood, and God was not going to change his mind. And the word of his power was a guarantee that it was going to happen. But his goal was more than just merely demonstrating his power. God accommodates our frailty. With signs and seals and covenant reminders, God works to help us believe him. So God swears an oath to Abraham. It is fitting to view this table in that way. As an act of God's gracious accommodation to the doubts and fears we have. It takes the abstract and it makes it concrete. It takes that which might otherwise be relegated to the realm solely of the intellect and it makes it tangible. Every good teacher knows that as you engage more aspects of a student's being, her intellect, his movements, her hands, his ears, the student will learn better. In all these ways, what is being taught is driven home more fully, more permanently, more deeply. And if we, as mere human teachers, know this, surely our maker, the master teacher, knows it as well. And make no mistake, we are students. That's what the word disciple means. It means student. We are disciples of Jesus. We are learning to be the human beings we were supposed to be. But our teacher is a gracious teacher. Our God is a gracious God. And so at this table, he engages more than merely our intellect. He engages our eyes through the things we see, our hands through what we touch. Our nose through the smell of the fresh bread and the wine. It's a pretty good argument, actually, for wine over grape juice, a little more smell. And he engages, perhaps, even our ears in the pouring out of the cup. And what is taught? Surely there is nothing new at this table. Surely what is 
taught at this table is actually better explained and better known more completely as it is articulated in the gospel. Yes, Christ is at this table, but without the word, without the gospel, would he actually be seen? Which is why we never take communion apart from the word of God, apart from the preaching of the Bible. On its own, it stands as something of a mystery. There's really not enough there to make salvation known to the uninitiated. But to us who know, it ought to be a wonderful, almost necessary addition. For it draws us in, it envelops us in a way which words alone might not do. You know, it's one thing for a young man to talk with a girl about getting married, about their plans for the future, but it is altogether something else to put a ring on her finger. Now, does he love her more for her having the ring? Of course not. Does she love him more for the ring? I hope not. And yet the ring matters. In one sense, the ring changes nothing. And in another sense, it changes everything. It points to something concrete. It is an emblem of the boy, usually at that stage of life, flat broke, scraping together enough money to buy a precious jewel as a symbol of his commitment. The sacraments are such signs. We will next week, as part of our ongoing confession of faith through our shorter catechism, we will ask and answer question number 94. What is baptism? And the answer, baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost does signify and seal our ingrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. My illustration wasn't that far off. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are an engagement ring of sorts. They are reminders of God's love, of his faithfulness, of his commitment to us. Just as the words, I love you, are made richer with a hug, so the gospel is adorned with the sacrament of the Lord's table. Now make no mistake, we still have a need for faith. There is no diminishing of the place of faith. God has decreed that the Christian life would be one of faith and not sight. Waiting for what has been promised and not yet delivered. Hoping in what we cannot see. And this table does not change that one bit. There is no magical imparting of salvation at this table. Salvation is not imparted by baptism, nor is it maintained at the Lord's uh, Supper. Salvation is apart from this table. It is by grace through faith. Our passage actually makes that point, even if it is a bit indirect. Look at verses 13 and 14 yet another time. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, when and where did God swear out this oath and make this promise? Perhaps your Bible has a footnote, as mine does. 
Where in the scriptures was this oath taken? In Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is the passage where Abraham offers up Isaac on Mount Moriah. And this oath is after that event. Now, why did Abraham take Isaac up Mount Moriah? Because he believed God. He trusted God. He had faith in God. In other words, the oath that's being discussed here in the book of Hebrews is actually not what converted Abraham, but rather what kept Abraham, what reassured him. Even in the aftermath of one of the greatest displays of faith humankind has ever known, God says, don't doubt. Believe me, I swear to you, by my own self, I can be trusted. God wanted Abraham to be secure in the faith, assured. Anchored, as this passage in Hebrew says. And that is the nature of this table. It does not impart salvation. Salvation is a, a gift of God's grace received through faith. But to those who believe, this table is as much an, an encouragement as God's oath was to Abraham. It's the notary's seal on a document. Which, by the way, is how we refer to it, right? One of the things we call our sacraments are signs and seals. It is that assurance of truth. God can't lie. He will never mislead, never change his mind, never not deliver upon his word because it is the word of power. Though we are tainted by mistrust, and have need of assurances, confirmation, oaths, and vows, and all manner of swearing out a promise. God accommodates our need. He is aware of our frailty. Jesus knows it experientially, having lived in our frail form. And so out of his great love for those who are his own, he swore out an oath to Abraham, and he gives to us, the signs and seals of the sacraments, affirmations that we are his, and he does not lie. What an amazing God we have. Let's pray. Lord, remove the mistrust from our hearts. Wipe away the doubts from our minds. And when we doubt, help us to cry out, that we need a measure of your grace. Let us cry with the man in the book of Mark. I believe, help my unbelief. Let us recognize in this table and in baptism the great grace that you have bestowed upon us, your people, giving to us signs and seals, things that incorporate the fullness of our being so that they reach deeper within us, so that we would believe more fully and cling to you more closely. So let us celebrate this table today with great joy and assurance in you who are a God who cannot lie. We pray this in the beautiful name of our risen Savior. Amen.